This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Something that we want organizations to start recognizing is that the only way to meet patient needs going forward is going to be through care redesign. The only way then to ensure that we're treating people at the right time and the right place with the right suite of services is by reconfiguring our offerings and redesigning the way in which we're actively delivering care. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Duran, and I have with me today two colleagues who really lead our forecasting effort. Forecasting has always been core of what SG2 does. And the behind the scenes is this time of year is one of the most intense for our forecasting teams to be thinking about all the key trends that are going to get quantified in our forecast. And members will start to see that in the national and local data at the end of the spring or early summer. I have with me today Dr. Maddie McDowell and Tori Ritchie, who are the dynamic duo who have led our forecasting for several years to give us a sneak peek into some of the key themes and how we're thinking those are going to impact our demand forecast going forward. Maddie and Tori, thank you so much for joining us. Tori, I'll go to you first because this all starts with baseline data. Where are we today in terms of recovery from COVID and we'll call it the rebound of volumes across health systems. Thanks, Trevor. To just cut to the punchline, inpatient discharges are still down. We're sitting at about a 5% decline in discharge volumes for Q3 of 2022 versus Q3 of 2019. That said, days are up. And when we break this down, we see things like behavioral health, ortho, CV, those are all declining. However, trauma, transplants, some of those more intensive and acute conditions are up. In that same vein, we've seen an increase in ICU days. So that really plays into that rising acuity story that SG2 has been telling for a number of years now. And that's contributing then to an increase in length of stay. Additionally, I would be remiss to not mention the workforce challenges that no doubt all organizations across the country are experiencing to some extent. Those workforce challenges coupled with then that rising patient acuity, it's really leading to hospitals feeling strapped from a capacity perspective. Folks are having a more difficult time transitioning patients from inpatient to post-acute care, from the ED to inpatient. That's really creating a backlog within the hospitals today. As you think about next year, inevitably, the state of the economy is going to have an impact on the way we forecast demand. Maddie, in both the really near term and then over the 10 years of our forecast, how do we see the potential near-term recession impacting demand? couple of things. One, in the past with recessions, healthcare tends to be impacted later than other industries. Part of that has always been because the layoffs and unemployment that occur during a recession impact patients' insurance status later. In this recession, there's two unique things. One, we have the exchanges that are protective now because people who are out of work can still have subsidized insurance. In addition, this recession may be different, we're told from the economic experts, in that we have a very strong growth job market. What we see with this recession in next year, what we're planning for is with the inflation and financial outlook, we're expecting to see price sensitivity become increasingly a challenge, a burden, top of mind for consumers. They may be delaying, deferring care, certainly shopping around looking for lower priced care. And employers will be too, as they look to see their costs going up. How do they cut costs by getting lower contracted employee-sponsored health insurance? So those are two big areas that we see 
efficiency impacted by healthcare utilization that we're planning to add to the forecast next year. And we're going to have a whole episode in a couple weeks where two colleagues from Kaufman Hall go super deep on all the ways that they think the economy could impact the operating system for health systems, their finances, and then the investment arm of their business. I know we're looking forward to that conversation. SG2 is always talking care redesign as something that we anticipate is going to impact how health systems meet demand in the future. Now is no different, maybe different, more extreme drivers of care redesign than we've seen before. Maddie, how how do we see care redesign impacting demand in what areas? Where might it be bigger or smaller? One of the areas that we've seen a significant change in utilization is in behavioral health. As we look at the COVID recovery, we've seen behavioral health inpatient volumes down dramatically, 20% in our last analysis of Q3 of this year compared to 2019. We've also seen ED behavioral health volumes down. Now, part of this may be due to capacity constraints in the ED and the inpatient forcing patients to find alternative care. Some of this is not good, but there is a silver lining to this in that we've seen psychotherapy visits in our claims data jump 30% since COVID. And part of the reason we're seeing this jump is the expanded use of social workers. So using not only physicians, mid-levels, and psychotherapists, but using social workers to really expand that workforce to be able to address this. And with that extended access, we believe we're seeing some improved care management for behavioral health. The other thing to mention is we are looking at the suicide rates to see if attempted suicides are going up with this decline in inpatient in ED, and we haven't seen that so far. That's one example of care redesign that we're beginning to see today, the use of different types of staff and skill sets to expand our reach for care management. We know virtual health was a big solution during COVID to help address access, and it continues to be used, but much less so than during the peaks in 2020. So virtual visits have come down. In-person visits have gone up. We're now hovering around 13% of all visits being virtual, when at the peak, it was about 50%. The reason virtual visits are not being adopted as much is because they still do not provide a solution for the strapped workforce. You still need to have a clinician on the other end of that computer or phone to conduct the visit. Where we're seeing some dynamic changes, though, is with using artificial intelligence and new virtual diagnostic modalities to really help expand the reach of the care team. Doing programmatic development more comprehensive for care at home, for example, not just a single point solution to really help change the way a patient's manage more efficiently using less workforce going forward. Something that we want organizations to start recognizing is that the only way to meet patient needs going forward is going to be through care redesign. The workforce shortages that we're experiencing today, and as shortages were in place prior to the pandemic, they just maybe are a bit more severe right now. And so we're facing a workforce challenge. It's not just a shortage. And the only way then to ensure that we're treating people at the right time and the right place with the right suite of services is by reconfiguring our offerings and redesigning the way in which we're actively delivering care. I get to sit in on some of the forecast discussions. And one thing that I know may be debated this year is we've been pretty aggressive historically in the potential of what can shift to virtual. We've had a great learning lab the last couple of years. Are you thinking differently about that long-term outlook? Are you thinking differently about what is a good candidate to shift to virtual? How's the virtual forecast going to change based on what we've learned in the last couple of years? 
The virtual forecast is changing in its entirety with the SGT forecast this year. We actually have claims data to help us model how many evaluation and management visits are occurring virtually. And so that'll be an enhancement to this year. No longer will we just see X percent of E&M visits will occur virtually in Y year. We're actually going to have a tangible number in that baseline for our starting point. This year in the forecast, we're going to be actively forecasting for evaluation and management visits, both new and established, both in-person and virtual. We'll be doing the same for psychotherapy. So those will be a couple of ways that we can start more discreetly breaking out that virtual adoption. In terms of the path forward for virtual, we still believe there is going to be uptake long-term of virtual capabilities. Right now, we're sitting at, what, 27%, I think, in the 10-year timeframe. We don't expect to go substantially higher or lower than that number. We'll still continue to hit right up that mid to high 20s number. You've both touched on in places how care in the ED is shifting, pressures on the ED. ED volumes are still down a little bit, but they've made a pretty bold recovery. There's still plenty of room to shift urgent visits out, which has been kind of a key driver of our the last few years relatively flat ED forecast. There's probably a floor to that, though. What are we learning about how the mix of services in the ED today may impact how we're forecasting those volumes will continue to shift over the next 10 years? We've taken a look at the latest Vizian clinical comparative database, and what we've seen there is a continued decline in those lower acuity urgent visits. So this, again, is very much in line with that SG2 forecast story. We are still seeing pretty steep declines quarter over quarter, so we think that there's a bit more room to shift that volume out of the ED. At the same time, we've seen those higher acuity emergent visits and critical care ED visits grow. What we're thinking is at some point within our forecast, we are going to hit that floor. We are going to hit a place where we can't shift those low acuity visits out anymore. There just isn't any juice left to squeeze there. And from that point, we'll start seeing it a slight increase in ED visits as just that patient population that's left behind in the ED. It's going to grow a bit over the remaining years. Maddie, I'll come back to you because I know the way surgeries have shifted across sites has been another key part of our forecast for years. My understanding is this year we're looking at trends of surgery shifting in all directions. What are some of the big surgical shift stories that you're following? On the inpatient side, we have new surgeries or new innovations allowing new applications. So think about TAVR, that's minimally invasive valve replacement, being applied to broader populations that didn't get even the open heart valve surgery before, thrombectomy for stroke, replacing TPA infusion. But we also have rising acuity on the inpatient side that's slowing down that shift in surgeries to the outpatient setting for certain conditions. On the outpatient side, though, we're seeing robust shifts still. Orthopedics is probably the front winner of this, where we're seeing the shift to both HOPD and ambulatory surgery centers. Lots of growth in the ambulatory surgery center arena. One of the things that's slowing down that growth, though, is surgeries where physicians prefer to use robotics. They are now keeping those patients in the HOPD where they have the robot, but we're seeing a lot of movement in terms of innovation to get lower priced robots that are smaller that could be more suitable for the ASC, which will in turn accelerate the shift for physicians that prefer to use the robot for certain cases to go to the ASC. Really where the biggest growth is, is in the ASC still, but we're seeing these headwinds that are continuing to drive growth in the HOPD and inpatient setting, as I mentioned. 
Maddie, I'll come back to you because our forecast always tracks innovation and technology as a key bucket across service lines. My understanding is, in particular this year, there's some new therapeutics that we think could really be impacting the forecast. There's a lot of change happening in terms of therapeutics and new medications that really could change our growth trajectories. I'm going to put them into some larger buckets. So on the cancer front, we have radio pharmaceuticals and diagnostics that are rapidly being adopted in new ways to treat cancers. Theranostics for prostate cancer, for example, with improved outcomes. Another important area to follow is the new diabetes obesity drugs. These are going to, over time, we believe, become more widely adopted. Some of this is recently being covered by insurance. Some are still not covered by insurance. But one of the classes is the SGLT inhibitors for diabetes that also recently have been shown to improve congestive heart failure, both mortality and reduce hospitalizations for that. So with these types of drugs that treat the chronic disease underlying obesity, diabetes, heart disease, in seven to 10 years, we could see the prevalence of these conditions impacted for the better with a reduction in hospitalizations for these conditions. Another very important class of drugs or area of research is gene therapy. And this is a really interesting area where we're finding drugs that can cure, not just treat rare diseases like, for example, hemophilia. It's a single dose infusion that's been recently FDA approved for adults with hemophilia to prevent the need for them to use factor nine infusion, which is a very expensive ongoing therapy. However, the price tag for this initially is a whopping $3.5 million. Hard to really even grasp how that could become something widely adopted. So it will take some time to understand how this will be a financially doable proposition for patients for insurers, for employers, for particularly Medicaid and Medicare. So stay tuned for that. But with this knowledge and expertise coming in the pipeline, we expect to see that eventually these prices will come down, that there will be competitors, and that these types of curative treatments will be made available to the public, which would have a drastic impact on these rare genetic conditions. That gets close to touching on some of the social determinants of health that we've been doing a ton of research on for the last couple of years. And now for the first time, will be really quantified in our forecast through one of our hyper-localized factors. What does that mean? What's it going to look like? What are we looking at the market level to understand where some of the big differences are going to be? When we build our national forecast, we also build in hyperlocalization, which is adjustments to the national forecast that are specific to local market conditions. We've been doing this since 2018, and it's really helped with the accuracy of our forecast predictions in the market. One of the areas we know that there is large variation in utilization is in geographic pockets with health disparity, so high social community needs. At Vizient, we now have a very robust index called the Vizient Vulnerability Index that measures these social needs by zip code. So we are going to be leveraging this information to better localize our forecast for conditions that we know are impacted by social determinants of health. We have very robust state data that has allowed us to see what the differences are in use rate and growth for conditions by zip code. And what we've discovered, not surprisingly, is that there are significantly higher use rates for chronic disease, trauma, pregnancy-related conditions, and behavioral health, to name a few. So we will be building in the impact of social determinants of health by geography, by zip code, into our market forecast for next year. 
I'm going to ask you both a high level question. Tori, I'll go to you first. At a really high level, obviously, the last couple of years have been hard to build a baseline off of. How are we thinking about forecasting for the next 10 years based on what we've seen from the last two years, how we think about that as a baseline, and at the same time, all the constraints health systems have today with meeting demand? We're really operating off of a new baseline. The world as we know it has changed. The patient composition of those that are coming into that inpatient setting for care, it looks quite different than who was coming in prior to the pandemic. We're all older. We're all a bit worse for wear. And so it is one of those things that we have to factor into the forecast. At the same time, because workforce has taken the hit that it is, it's something that we're considering in that what are those downstream impacts due to these workforce challenges? This isn't something that is explicitly captured in the forecast as that is more of a supply or or strategy-based measure. But we are thinking through some offline tools that we can arm our members with to better capture really what those local and nuanced impacts are within their market. In addition, we have to think about that grim calculus equation. Because of the pandemic, we're looking at now 1.3 million excess deaths. These are people who were likely going to be high utilizers of healthcare services. And that's now a patient population that's gone. So how is that then impacting utilization? Really in that near to midterm, that's a bit of a blip. So we do expect to see maybe some soft declines in volumes over the next three to five years where if the pandemic hadn't happened, those individuals would be seeking services for myocardial infarction or stroke or any other number of services that fit that aging comorbid population. And we're already seeing that in the data. We uncovered that myocardial infarction is down 15%. It should be actually uh, post-COVID. We should be seeing a higher acuity patient population. Stroke is flat. COPD is still down over 30%, which we knew had a lot to do with infection disease control and social distancing. But that seems to no longer be the driving factor. Dementia down, prostate cancer, patients down. Some of this could be the grim calculus. But the exciting news is we are no longer using a 2019 baseline. We've used that for several years. We are now officially going to a 2023 baseline as we have much more stable volumes and can now forecast off of that. That was such a good answer. But what about the way people's immune systems have responded to COVID? Are we thinking about that? Are we seeing that in volumes? Is there enough good research out there for us to think differently about, I hate to call it backfill, If it was a patient group who we expected to be high utilizers, have we almost backfilled by making another group more susceptible to other infectious diseases? We definitely have seen that with the pediatric population, a significant rise in very high severity infectious disease. So patients, maybe an increase in RSV, but more importantly, an increase in the ICU use of RSV and other infections. This pandemic, whether it's social distancing or COVID itself, has impacted people's immune systems and particularly the pediatric population. But we also have long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, other types of long-term complications of COVID that have affected over a million of our population and have also brought recognition to other viruses that have caused prolonged chronic fatigue and post-viral syndromes like mono, Lyme. We'll be seeing a lot more research into this type of phenomenon and hopefully some better therapies to treat this larger population. 
Maddie and Tori, thank you so, so much for giving us a glimpse into the many things that somehow you're keeping straight in your heads that are going to be important factors in our forecast this year. Look forward to hearing more from you as all this gets quantified and developed throughout the spring. Thanks so much for joining us on SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.